0: Welcome to New Hope's teaching podcast. This is an excerpt from our Sunday morning service. Visit newhopepdx.org/teaching for notes, worship, and church announcements. Stay up to date with our teaching series and events by downloading our app. Just text New Hope PDX app to seven seven nine seven seven. Enjoy this week's lesson. Hey, how's it going, New Hope? Thanks for for joining us uh, online. Uh, years ago, uh, I was close to a man named Jeff, who had a profound impact on my spiritual journey as a, as a young kid. Jeff uh, led the Youth for Christ ministry in our local high school. Jeff taught me a lot about what it meant to follow Jesus. Jeff made me want to follow Jesus. One time, I was at a conference with Jeff. It was Jeff and I, and maybe four or five other young men in an elevator, and and stopped door open An attractive woman got on she rode with us about two floors got back off and you know we're high school boys we're we're giggling and doing that kind of thing and Jeff took that moment to talk to us about when he's away from his wife which he was that weekend how he takes extra precautions to guard his heart and to make sure that he he is faithful to his wife it was a great little chat about the sanctity of marriage and I took note Uh, not too long after that uh, I I heard the news that, that Jeff had been having an affair with his secretary uh, for some time, and it was, it was crushing. It kind of shattered my young faith, to be honest. I was confronted for the first time with the sad reality that sometimes the way someone talks and acts in public doesn't always match up to how they talk and act in private. And I've been confronted with that again and again and again in my spiritual journey, as many spiritual heroes have been exposed for having a private life that didn't match their public persona. And and that's the deal, right? It's, it's somewhat easy to follow Jesus out front in the public. Boy, it's hard to follow Jesus in uh, our homes and in our workplaces. If you want to know if somebody's really following Jesus, then take a look at those places that most people don't see. If you want to know if I'm following Jesus, don't just look at me on Sunday and In the talks I give and and this and that, a lot of people can give a good sermon. Ask my kids, ask my wife, ask the staff that I work with, uh, and then get back to me. Tell me what they say. (laughs) Paul knew all of this, and today we're going to look at a passage where Paul explores what it looks like to follow Jesus in our homes and in our workplaces. Uh, I think we've got two more weeks left of this series that we've been in for quite a while called Resurrecting Church. It's a study of Paul's letter to, it says the church at Ephesus, but as we've talked about it, it was all the churches in Asia Minor. Paul is trying to give them a wake-up call. He's trying to give them this apocalyptic vision to reveal what church is meant to be. And we think it's, it's profoundly important that our church, New Hope, studies this letter right now so we can remember And have a wake-up call to what the church is meant to be. Paul is writing a story. He's telling us a story that we're meant to step into and we're meant to live out. And the most important places, the most impactful places, the most revealing places we live out, this story is in our closest, most intimate relationships, Uh, the people we live with and the people we work with. So we'll be uh, digging into and exploring An often misunderstood passage, Uh, Ephesians 5, 21, all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And Gary Walker will be reading our scripture. Gary, take it away.
1: Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in the 21st verse Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly, as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him this is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Gary. Uh, can I just say, doesn't Gary have an awesome reading voice? I, I feel like he should probably just read my sermon. And it would be so much more effective. So thanks, Gary. So woo, how about that passage? Go ahead and keep it open if, you're, if you've are if you got it at home. If you don't, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians 5.21 and get it out there. Let's look at it because we're going to get into it. It's often misunderstood and, and we got to get into the, the intricacies of it. So wives submitting to husbands, slaves obeying masters. Here we go, all in one passage. What could go wrong? (laughs) So the key verse uh, right at the top, the first verse that Gary read, is the most important one. That verse governs the entire passage. So the verse is this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, Scholars call this the interpretive key for the entire passage. It's a tough passage. What is going on there? What does he mean? Well, that verse, 521, unlocks all the tension points. It, it reveals the meaning of the passage. So that, that, that verse has two components to it that are connected. The first is submit to one another. This, this word submit in the Greek literally means to put oneself under someone else. It's closely connected to the word humility, which means to go lower. This is not uh, meant to convey some sense of inferiority. It's intended to suggest a mindset that puts other people first. I just define submission as you go first. That's kind of the heart of the word submission. It's the word submission, not subjugation. Subjugation is when you use your power and your position to make someone go under you, to make someone submit. That's not the word. It's submission. Submission suggests it's a voluntary act that we're choosing to place ourselves under another. Uh, There's a freedom to it. Paul challenges in this passage towards, he says, one another, so it's mutual submission. That's really key to understanding this passage. All the different relationships, he's calling everyone to mutually submit. Well, why? Well, he says, submit to one another out of reverence to, for Christ. This is the second half. This is the why. And this is self-evident. He, he introduces the beginning, and then he keeps repeating it. Look down in the passage. You'll see this. You can do this work, too. He won't let us forget it. It's key to understanding the passage. Nine times, he says, submit in the Lord, uh, two times or uh, as to the Lord, two times in the Lord. And at the very end, he reminds slaves and masters that they have the same ultimate master. So he's continually reorienting everyone up to our relationship to Jesus. I say it this way: our relationship to Jesus transforms our relationship to one another. So let me draw a little picture here. Not a good artist, that's my wife, but we'll we'll give it a go here. So at the top we have Jesus, the main lead actor of our story that we've been in. And then we'll draw a little triangle here. And then down here we have a person. Over here we have another person. So these are the relationships, these are the pairs, and we can plug in any relationships down here on this horizontal plane. This is kind of where we do life and relate to one another. So Paul, throughout this passage, this is essentially what's going on. He's constantly reorienting our horizontal relationships up to Jesus, Um, and it, and it has a transformative uh, re, uh, effect. So, what does it look like to relate to one another in Jesus? Well, there we, we have to be contextual again. Let's go back up to a verse we covered last week at the very beginning of the chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. Go ahead and look up in your scriptures. This is Paul defining what it looks like to relate to one another in Christ. It's awesome. He says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to sin. So it's all about love. It's all about laying down our lives for one another. So as we relate to one another in Christ, we, watch this, see, this is where the triangle works. We begin to come closer together in a world that's coming apart. If we relate to each other apart from Christ and we relate on this plane, we try to subjugate one another and dominate one another and use power and it creates division and tension and strife. We all know what that's like, but as we turn our attention from that to Jesus, and we orient ourselves there, then we come closer and closer to it, and we experience the quality that we're told that we have in Jesus. So this is, this is the interpretive key. We have to, to understand the complexities of this passage. We'll have to return to this again and again and again. And we'll end the message there by bringing us into our modern context. How are we doing? Everybody good? Okay, here we go. So we do this. Why would we do all this? Why would we do this mutual submission deal? Paul says we do it out of reverence for Christ. This is one of those hyperlinks that I talk about all the time, uh, New Testament readers would have immediately thought of one of the most uh, constant phrases used in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord, or the fear of Yahweh. This is the mentality we're told to have towards God and his ways in the Hebrew scriptures. Paul's essentially using the same phrase, reverence or, or fear uh, for, for Christ. It's the Greek word uh, phobos, and we get our word phobia from it. But it's not meaning like, oh, I'm so scared of God. It's not that at all. Old Testament scholar John Walton defines it, taking God seriously. I love that. And I think reverence is a good way to say it, having reverence for Christ. Uh, Understanding that one day all of us will stand before a holy and righteous God and give account for our lives. That's why we mutually submit to one another in Jesus. That's the reason. The question is, do we take God seriously? When we come to our relationship, we do life together. Are we going to submit to one another in Jesus? Are we going to orient our lives and our relationships to Jesus? Well, do we take God seriously? Uh, if we do, then we'll begin to relate to one another and submit by saying, you first, no, you first, no, you first, no, you first. So here's the deal. We can talk this good game. I could preach it. We can smile at church and do the public thing, and it looks like we're doing mutual submission and all of that. We've got to fake it that way. You can't fake it at home. You can't fake it in the workplace, in your most intimate relationships. Paul knows this. So as he's talking about the story that we're supposed to step in and live, he's like, yeah, you could do it on a Sunday, but it's most important that you do it in your homes and in your workplaces. And then he goes right into three pairs of those relationships. So here we go. We got to get in the nitty gritty. Um, buckle up. So I say all the time here, the Bible wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. To understand what the Bible means, it's an ancient document written in other languages, totally different culture. We have to understand the original audience. or We'll misconstrue and get it wrong all the time. So that's really, really important for this passage. So we're gonna spend some time going back talking about what life was like in first century uh, Greco-Roman world. It's obviously far different. Paul is giving in this passage what's called a household code. This was well known. We see this in all other, uh, tons of other documents outside the Bible in the same time frame. Uh, Aristotle, Plato. Tons of people talked about household codes. They were the framework that kind of held society together. Paul is taking that household code and he's interacting with it. So for us, a household code, when I first moved in with a bunch of guys and I was single, one of our rules was no dirty dishes in the sink, for instance. We all agreed to that and nobody, everybody broke that rule. Uh, in our home, when I got married and uh, it, my wife's first rule was don't leave the toilet seat up after you go to the bathroom. So it was things like that, right? Don't You can't wear your outside shoes all around in the house, things like that. These are, these are household rules. Now now that we have girls that are getting older they have chores and we have expectations it's how the house runs and functions so it's similar to that but way more important um, this is where for Paul the rubber meets the road within these household codes the household in the Greco-Roman first-century world was the bedrock of not only human interactions but all of society uh, it, it, it had a family unit that existed within it that that was the source of life itself So the health of the household meant the health of the entire family unit, and it was a much larger and uh, uh, diverse family unit that most of us experience. A typical household in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world consisted of grandparents, parents, children, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, foster children, renters, hired servants, and slaves. Many, many people all living together, and most people worked out of their homes. So commerce was happening in the home and everyone was involved in whatever the family did to make money. And when people came to faith in Jesus, oftentimes the entire household came to faith. We see that in the New Testament. So a household could be the workplace, like a massive family reunion and Sunday church all happening at once, and you thought your life was complex, but that's what's happening. Furthermore, there was, a, there was authoritative rule in this household. Uh, we uh, have documents from first century Greco-Roman world that define family, and here you go, this is going to bother some of you, as the number of people by birth or law subjected to one man. Sorry, that's just, this is just the reality. I got to tell you how it was. This one man was the oldest living man in the household, uh, he was re- uh, referred to as as the paterfamilias. The paterfamilias uh, uh, was a position of honor. Uh, this was the person that had the, the legal rights to the entire family. Really, everyone living in the home was the property of the paterfamilias. And the paterfamilias was the face of the family. Uh, it, uh, he, he, he was uh, responsible for providing for all the family, protecting all the family. This is just how it worked. And a well-ordered household, a well-functioning household, meant honor in the first century. And the Romans took this very, very seriously. The Romans hated chaos. So if you had a well-ordered household ruled by a a good paterfamilias, then that was honor and esteem in the ancient Greco-Roman world. The backdrop of this is we know this from documents. Christians, or the way of Jesus, were accused of wrecking homes. And we think this, and it's not true, but this is what they were accused of. We think this came from when people would come to faith in Jesus and not follow the other gods. That created dissidence in the family and and chaos in the family. And so writers such as Tacitus, a Roman writer, accused Christians of hatred of the human race for what these these people stepping outside the family structure did. Paul knew all that. Paul is not looking to destroy the ancient Greco-Roman world or household as they were constructed. He was looking to transform it. He was trying to figure out a way to give followers of Jesus in the first century guidance on how to embrace their identity in Christ in a way that respects their culture and furthers the gospel. And what he does, please hear this, is brilliant in my estimation. I think that you'll see this as we get into the passage. Paul knows that a well-ordered household that consists of followers of Jesus um, will build goodwill for the way of Jesus and a good name and give them an opportunity to further the gospel. So what Paul does is he, he implants, I, I use this term, seeds of transformation. So he takes this typical household code, which was everybody knew, but he morphs it ever so slightly and he plants these seeds of transformation. And these seeds of transformation, they begin to subvert domination, exploitation, and they lead to a freedom and equality in Jesus. Uh, I don't know if you know the analogy of a Trojan horse in literature. It's the idea of this this massive wooden horse that got rolled into enemy territory. They thought it was a gift, but inside, you know, was this surprise army. That's the idea. Paul rolls in this Trojan horse into the ancient Roman uh, first century context. And the Trojan horse was household codes. Oh, it's a horse. Everybody knew it. It looked fine. But inside the horse were these seeds of transformation. In Paul's earliest letter to to the Galatian church, he writes, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female for you're all one in Christ. These are the seeds of transformation. This is the gospel. Paul deeply believed in this. This was incredibly liberating news, but it had to enter slowly and shrewdly into a society so that it didn't blow up the entire movement. So Paul kind of puts these seeds of transformation into this household code, and they're gonna slowly work themselves out to where they begin to transform not only the households, but the surrounding communities and the surrounding cultures, and eventually reach the the world. It's brilliant. So let's look at how he does this in, in three of these relationships. Paul lists three of these. These are typical relationships mentioned in household codes in the first century. And let's watch how he ingeniously and brilliantly plants seeds of transformation. I think that you'll be encouraged. All right, wives and husbands. Here we go. Uh, sorry, ladies, you're just going to have to hear this. We, each one, I'm going to give you ancient context, and then we're going to we're gonna talk about how Paul does his seeds of transformation. So uh, ladies, sorry to tell you this, but in the first century ancient Near East, women were largely considered to be inferior to men in both intellect and character. They had no formal education. Uh, women were the legal possession of their husbands. Uh, they couldn't testify in court. Uh, they had to rely on their husbands for, for literally everything. The idea of feminism or a liberal democracy in the Roman empire just simply did not exist. We've got to keep that in mind. And now look what Paul does. It's pretty radical. Paul is planting seeds of transformation. First, it's important in each of these pairings, and and it's a minor detail, but it's huge that Paul addresses the, in the Roman society, the more subordinate of the pair first, the more vulnerable. He doesn't start with husbands. He starts with wives. He starts with children. He starts with slaves. It's ingenious. It's very small, but it's important. So he tells them, he tells them, and this is where we'll go back to our triangle. He doesn't say, wives, submit to your husbands just because. That was like what everybody thought of. He says, wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord. And this is so crucial, in the Lord. He's directing their submission up to Jesus. Do it, Paul says, in the Lord. Uh, so, Paul also doesn't tell wives to obey, he tells them to submit in the Lord, which is a voluntary choice on their behalf. So, uh, Paul says that, uh, th- that um, the husbands, as he turns his attention to them, he says that as Jesus is the head of the church, husbands are the head of the wife, and already some of you, you ladies are just getting whoa, I don't, but let's look at what he does. To use this word head, in the first century uh, Roman Greco context, this word head was often used for emperors and political leaders. And the Roman emperor who was the head wasn't expected to to love anyone, wasn't expected to sacrifice or die for the people. The inverse was true. The people were supposed to love the emperor, the people were supposed to sacrifice and die for the emperor. But Paul brilliantly flips it on its head, and this is what the gospel does. He he says he says that that as Jesus, who was the head of the church, loved the church and gave himself up for the church, so husbands, as the head in the Roman society, and that's just what they were, are to live that way. We have no evidence in the first century of all the household codes we have discovered of any time ever husbands are told to love their wives. Marriage was about producing children. It wasn't about love in the first century. And here we have this provocative state where Paul comes into the household code, plants these seeds of transformation, acknowledges that in that culture, husbands were the head, but said, husbands, as the head, you need to be the head like Jesus was. You need to love your wives and lay down your lives for the wife So he flips the script. So because of Paul's words, the way of Jesus was the first significant movement to champion and liberate women. And may it be so again today. Let's move on to children and parents. This is the second couplet of relationships. So again, some context. In the first century, ancient Near East, children were seen as property. They were at the same level as slaves. Children's lives were also very tenuous. One out of five children died at childbirth. 35% of toddlers died in their first couple of years. 50% of kids did not make it to the age of 10. The ones that did survive often by the age of seven were working in the fields and in very in shops and kind of arduous labor. Infanticide was also a huge deal. And th- th- this meant that if a family did not want a child, and this was often if they, if they uh, had a female child, because male children were valued, they would literally leave the child outdoors to die as they were exposed to the elements or get eaten by wild animals. It was just a common deal. Uh, Sexual exploitation of children was also widespread. To put it bluntly, children in the ancient world were given little dignity or worth. So have that as a backdrop, and then here comes Paul. And let's see what he does with these seeds of transformation in the way of Jesus. The first seed is that he even addresses children. No one ever gave children the time of day. Paul gives them uh, focus. He gives them intentionality as he casts a vision for what the way of Jesus should be. Paul tells them, again, not to just obey their parents for the sake of obeying their parents. This was what would normally be said. He says to obey your parents in the Lord. The early churches consisted of many children that joined for worship. He's like, don't just obey them, because that's what society said. Obey them in the Lord. Uh, Paul, and we don't think this way because of our conception of kids, he was also talking to the adult children. Remember, they all still lived together. You didn't move out. So there's many adult children in these households. And in many households, adult children would come to faith in Jesus, and they existed in a household that still followed the God's. So Paul's telling them, look, as much as you can, still honor your parents, because that's what you should do if you want to reach this culture for Jesus. If We want the gospel to be good news. As much as you can, honor them. Peter says the same thing. That gives us the best chance that they would see your good works and come to Jesus and believe the gospel is good news. Paul then addresses, he says fathers in the text, and this is just how things were constructed in that day and age, but Fathers and mothers educated children, so you could just write in their parents. That's totally appropriate. He says, parents, uh, bring your children up in the Lord. Do not exasperate them. This word just means to make your children angry. So this is incredibly incredible. Like, not, we can't find any of this advice in the ancient world. Paul telling parents, these children have no dignity or worth, to honor their children. Furthermore, remember, back up to verse 21, it's mutual submission. So that means he's telling the parents to go under and serve their children. This is really, really radical stuff. The way of Jesus was the first significant movement to champion and liberate children, and may that be so again today. All right, let's get to slaves and masters. Here we go. We're just ticking a ball. So again, context is really important here. Uh, Slavery that's in our mind as Americans— is different than slavery in the first century. And here's some ways that it was different. Uh, Slavery in the first century was common and accepted. Uh, At least 10% of the entire population were slaves. It was probably much higher in metropolitan areas. Uh, No writers and thinkers that we can find during that time ever questioned slavery. By the second century, the majority of free citizens in Rome owned slaves. Slavery in the first century was not based On race. That that is just not something that existed in the first century. Slaves were often losers in war. So there's much warfare. Julius Caesar shipped one million people that they had captured back to Rome to be slaves. Slavery was sometimes voluntary. Uh, That was a common practice. Somebody would get into debt and be like, hey, I want to for a season be your slave to pay that off. Slaves were often highly educated. Artists, doctors, teachers, poets, architects, philosophers were all slaves we know. Uh, slaves could be set free. And finally, slavery varied. There were household slaves, agricultural slaves, urban services, uh, mining slaves. Paul is only talking to household slaves here, so it's different. This was a personal issue for Paul. Uh, It's estimated that 20% of, especially the Gentile churches that Paul's talking to, consisted of slaves. Uh, And notice what he's doing here. He once again reorients the relationship, and he's telling slaves to submit to their masters because they have the same master, Jesus. And this is just so, I can't even explain to you how radical this is. He uses, if you look down the text, chapter nine, uh, six, verse nine, he, he has this, the word masters and then he has capital masters. This is the same Greek word. So he's doing this cute turn of phrase that has very serious implications. He's like, slaves, submit to your masters because you have the same master, Jesus that, that overarches all this. He's doing the same thing that he was doing with wives and husbands and children and parents. We submit to one another in the Lord, that our relationship to Jesus transforms our relationship to one another. So more radically, Paul tells the slaves to serve their masters wholeheartedly, but then he flips it and says the same of, of the masters to the slaves. We, we, we just have nothing like this. It's It's hard to convey how radical it is for Paul to be telling the masters to mutually submit to and put themselves under their slaves. Uh, To understand all this, it's helpful to look at a really small book of the Bible called Philemon. Read it this week, it'll take you like five minutes. It sneaks in there because it's like one page, but it's one of my favorite books because it's like this, this atom bomb in the Bible that just kind of blows up all conceptions of how things work. So briefly uh, in Philemon, Onesimus was a runaway slave from Philemon's house. So Philemon, we think, was the leader of a house church and he, he hosted a house church. So Paul knew Philemon and Paul's in prison in Rome. Uh, Onesimus steals from Philemon and takes off. And this would be a capital offense. So Philemon could have taken his life. Onesimus somehow, we don't know how, got to know Paul in prison, served Paul in prison. Paul, as he's writing this letter back to Philemon, says that Onesimus, Onesimus came to faith. He is my son and, and has his very heart. It's a very intimate relationship that is built between Paul and Onesimus. So Paul writes this letter to Philemon, and Onesimus carries it back to him. Imagine this scene. I mean, he's re- the runaway slave that's stolen is returning with a threat of capital punishment carrying this letter from the apostle Paul. To Philemon, who he knew. That's the the scene. So Paul tells Philemon to welcome Onesimus back as a brother in Christ, to welcome him as he would welcome Paul himself, and that Paul would take care of anything that he stole. I mean, it's it's incredible stuff. He 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 points Philemon to their common master in Jesus and points them to the equality that they have in Jesus. Do you see how these, I mean, Onesimus, Philemon, right? slave, master, it's playing out in scripture. We see Paul's practicing it. And he's saying your way forward is not to figure it out on this plane, because that not mean subjugation and division and heartache and strife, but realize that you are brothers in Christ and you are equal in Christ and you have the same master. Love one another and figure it out. We don't know how it ended. We do know tradition holds that Onesimus eventually became the bishop in Ephesus, so we got to think that that it it went well. Now, with all that said, some of you are doing this right now, I think, probably, and you're saying, okay, gentlemen, that's a good talk, but slavery is slavery. Totally. It's different, right? And and that's important to know, but slavery is slavery, and all of it is horrible. Please just hear that. And you're going to say, why didn't Paul just condemn it outright? And that is a great question that causes a lot of people to question Christianity and faith. So let's just talk about that just for like two minutes here. Here's a couple of reasons why Paul didn't just outright condemn it. And again, he's trying to be shrewd. He's entering into the Roman Greco world not to blow it up, but to intercedes of transformation so the way of Jesus and the good news and the gospel could flourish. Slave rebellions simply did not end well for slaves. We have one example where one slave rebelled in a household and the Roman government came in and killed all 400. Uh, the Romans did not put up with it because they hated chaos and they had to maintain order. Paul knew that he didn't have the power to say all the slaves set free. That would mean chaos and actually put the slaves in harm's way. Paul was always thinking about the most vulnerable, in this instance, the slave, Onesimus, others. Uh, Well, then you could say, well, why didn't Paul say, "Within the churches, just set your slaves free? Again, it can get complicated because a slave was a slave. So let's say a slave owner in a church set a slave free. Someone else could come from outside and grab that slave and take that slave into their home, and it's a far worse situation. So again, we we have what I like to call chronological snobbery. We look back 2000 years and we think we know all this better. It's very intricate what's happening. But the radical thing here is that Paul is coming into this ancient thing of masters and slaves and calling them brothers and sisters in Jesus. The slaves aren't animated machines. They're children of the living God. And that's radical in and of itself. Just know the, case, the biblical case against slavery, all slavery and subjugation of people is very, very strong. The Bible considers slavery evil and the antithesis of the way of Jesus. You have to hear that. Abolitionists, the ones who eventually came in to, to have the back of slaves and, and to promote the way of freedom for slaves, were almost all followers of Jesus. They used the Bible as their main source for why uh, we should do this. So it's remarkable to see how Paul's seeds of transformation that he planted in this ancient household code have come to flourish throughout the history of of, of this struggle with subjugation of certain people groups. Uh, Every major liberator, uh, abolitionist, almost that I could find or think of, is a follower of Jesus. We have William Wilberforce, John Newton, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Abraham Lincoln, John Wesley, Fred Douglass. We could go on and on and on. The way of Jesus, I believe deeply, was the first significant movement to champion and liberate slaves. And may it continue to be so today. So in this revised household code, if you will, Paul implants levels of mutuality, limitations on power, dignities for all. These are no-brainers for us today, but in the first century, these were absolutely revolutionary. Paul would have been considered a crazy liberal in his day. We have to keep that in mind as we worked through this passage. Some of you don't think Paul went far enough, enough, and, and I understand that, but I want you to realize how far he was actually going. I want you to understand that if he pushed it too far, it could have meant danger for the very people he was trying to protect and eventually bring liberty to. It could have meant the end of the way of Jesus as we knew it in the first century. Uh, Paul was attempting to equip churches and followers of Jesus in this ancient context in a very specific way to live out the story of the gospel in their culture in a way that could eventually transform it. He's trying to enter culture and work within culture to change culture. Uh, He's planting seeds of transformation that are still changing the world today. And that is truthful. And that's where we end our time with talking about us. We spend a lot of time talking about first century people. How about us? This, this, this verse, principally, uh, Ephesians 521, how does this work in our relationships? And this is where I want it to get real for us. We, we're, we're, we're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. How seriously are you taking that? How seriously do you take God that you're going to stand one day in front of God and give an account for how you live your life, how you do your relationships? I mean, let's put let's put ourselves into this. Think of one relationship. I don't know what it might be. It might be a, a family unit relationship or a workplace relationship or a friendship relationship. You're here, the other person's there. Invariably, we try to do relationships on this plane, and it just never goes well. It, it leads to subjugation and division and power plays and angst and heartache and brokenness and strife. We know all that. That's we're never gonna figure it out on this plane. But as followers of Jesus, if we begin to submit ourselves to one another in the Lord, because Jesus showed us how to do that in love, He gave Him His very self for us. He gave His life for us. He gave it away. And He calls us as we follow Him to do the same. If we begin to reorient our relationships with one another, whatever power dynamics exist, maybe you're less powerful and the other person is more powerful or vice versa. It doesn't matter to Paul. Everyone should be turned to Jesus. And as we do, we go from far away to closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. What will it look like this week? Whatever relationship you thought of when I challenge you, to enter that relationship and look to go under that person. To look to say, uh, uh, you first. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. That could be absolutely transformative to that relationship and to our church here and our community to the broader community, and I really believe to the world. This is the radicalness of what Paul is doing in the first century, and it was radical to them. It still continues to be radical. Here's the deal with Christlikeness <laughs> and people who follow Jesus, and are you really following Jesus and all that? We could totally fake it in public. You can't fake it at home. You can't fake it in the workplace with the people you do life with. No one can maintain that. Cracks will appear, and you'll, you will be, it will become evident to everyone whether you're the real deal in really following Jesus. If you want to know who's really following Jesus, just ask their kids. Ask the people they live with. Ask the people they work with. My pastor is the late Eugene Peterson. Uh, he always has been. Never got a chance to meet him. I'm bummed but much of who I am as a pastor is shaped by his writing and his sermons and his work. I have immense amount of respect for him. I've tried to model for a long time how I pastor and how I live, how I am as a parent from the things that I've learned uh, from Eugene. I recently came across a book I didn't even know existed, and it was a book of, uh, I think, 17 letters that he wrote his son Eric around the year 2000. Eugene was kind of retired and had served for 30 years in the church. Eric had his first pastorate, and it was over maybe a year and a half, two years, where Eugene would just write letters to Eric, giving his son advice. They're tender. They're beautiful. I'm just slowly making my way through them and highlighting the heck out of them. They're just steeped in wisdom. But as I first got the book, I open it, and it's kind of put together by his son Eric, and there's there's a foreword to the book where Eric talks about his dad. And I'll be honest with you, I kind of got tense. I got anxious. I'm reading late one night in in bed. And I was anxious because I was like, oh no. (laughs) What if this man that I've so respected that I bought a lot of my ministry, what if I learn, what if I'm about to learn that who he was in private is totally different than who he was in public? Been there tons of time. I was preparing my, my spirit to get crushed yet again. And then I read, and Eric talked about his dad. It wasn't always perfect. They had issues, this and this and this. And I'm just like, oh, what's gonna go. What's What's he gonna say? That he gets to the end of it in his last line, but he goes, "Know this, reader, my dad was the holiest man I ever met." And that, you know, as I get emotional now, that night, I'm I'm not lying to you. As I read that, I just wept. My wife was asleep. I'm just sitting there in bed crying, and I think the tears came from from two places. I came. I think they came from a place of gratitude that, that this man's life did align that who he was in private is who he was in public, and there's many like that. And I praise God for them every day that lead the way for, for still a young guy like me trying to figure it out. And two, it, that's who I want to be. <laughs> I, I want someday for, for my, my girls, Eden and Jubilee, and my wife and our staff and people that know me well, when I'm long gone and I'm out of my earth suit and I'm with the Lord, as they're reflecting on me, to say something like Eric said about Eugene. Oh, I'm not there yet. I think we all know that. Uh, I've got a ways to go. I'm a work in progress. But I have hope. I have hope because of this. Because Jesus and our relationship to Jesus and what Jesus has done for us and the good news of the gospel absolutely transforms us and our relationships with one another. That's the hope for me, and that's the hope for you. Let me pray for us. God, thanks uh, for this passage that is infuriating people. And I understand when you read it on the first, page, you're just like, "What is going on? Is Paul sexist and pro-slavery and all that?" But as we really understand the context and we see the real genius of what he is doing, Paul's implanting seeds of transformation in a way that eventually transformed those churches and the Roman Empire and has made its way out to still doing transforming work in our relationships and in our culture and our communities some 2,000 years later. That's amazing. And God, I pray this week, I don't know what relationship came to mind for people who are who are watching and, and pondering. I pray for that relationship right now. I pray it would return to the minds of the people who are listening to me pray right now. That, that face would come into mind, that relationship that's maybe been tough, that's been hard, there's been power dynamics and strife and Father, just as we follow you, may we reorient all those hard relationships and even the easy ones to a place of mutual submission, to going under those people, to looking to lay down our lives in love for those people. Not just for doing it, but because of what you have done for us and the lives that you've called us to live in your name, for your glory, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the world. We love you and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.